Good evening, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Tear Health with Dr. G. We are here Wednesday night, bringing the thunder, continuing this revolution going on. I'm so excited to bring you a show again. This show's every week like we do it here. We always want to make sure you have the right content, and today's show is no different. I'm in part three of my COVID-free three-week vacation. I'm coming back at it next week with some COVID content, but we're continuing that discussion today just to get a break of the COVID because we're inundated with that on all the time. So today I'm so excited to have a great show about obstructive sleep apnea and really what it comes out to, and those of you that have been following me on Facebook all week and all other forms of social media, we're really trying to highlight key health issues that are pertinent to you. This week we're going to be breaking it down. I have an amazing guest today this evening on the show, and we're just going to keep coming from there. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing out of Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois. I'm also a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. You can check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. We're going to bring it to you today, again, each week, making sure that we have the pertinent topic for you. Today, again, we're going to be talking about sleep apnea. And so I put out a feeler this week, as I put out some of these promos, I was talking about just the fact that obstructive sleep apnea, and that's what we're going to focus on today. We're not going to talk about the other forms of sleep apnea, mainly obstructive sleep apnea, but I'm talking about how it's such a big issue, contributing to hundreds of billions of dollars for economic impact to our country every year. And this disease is literally destroying the lives of tens of millions of Americans. And we have to talk about these things. Again, COVID is in the background. That's there. We're going to keep talking about it. And for those of you that have checked me in the past, I've done plenty of COVID shows. We've got more coming. We want to keep this going on because total health care does not stop during this pandemic. Medical issues are still going on and it's still important to talk about them. So I'm so excited to have you guys here. Uh, I'm going to introduce my guest in a few moments, but you know the deal. Every week on the show, I want to make sure you get all the information. And again, this show is all about building trust and delivering truth. But before we get started, let me read you a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for information and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So we're here today talking about obstructive sleep apnea, and I'm going to give you a little bit of everything in a, in a moment. Uh, we're going to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Juan Flores, just in a few moments here from now. But really what I want to set the record straight is here. About 30 million Americans are affected by obstructive sleep apnea. And the reality is that most of them do not realize it unless they've already seen their doctor and had the diagnosis made. We have to talk about this because obstructive sleep apnea is linked to a whole host of medical conditions. Everything from increasing somebody's risk of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, obesity, you name it, there's probably something that has to play with obstructive sleep apnea. So again, it's important important for us to talk about this topic that is plaguing so many of us. It's a common diagnosis that I see in my clinical practice on a daily basis. What we want people to really understand the, the signs and symptoms that are out there and really to create more awareness. The reality is most of the time this is, this is noticed by your bed partner. But we're going to talk more about that in detail and we're going to go everything from really just total obstructive sleep apnea, talking about everything from the diagnosis as well as treatment and other kind of strategies that are out there. So I'm so excited. So you guys are here today. I've got my guest uh, today, Dr. Juan Flores. I'm going to introduce him. He's been on my show in the past. You can find this out on my website, packets of old ar archives. Dr. Flores and I did a show back on the best sleep ever late in the fall last year, and I highly suggest 
and check that out because it was just a great show and I'm so excited to have him back. Dr. Flores, let me read his bio because his bio is fierce. Dr. Juan Flores is a bo double board certified uh, physician in pulmonology and critical care. He's also in sleep medicine. He's the, uh, with DuPage Medical Group. You can check him out at www.dupagemedicalgroup.com. He's also the medical director of the Edwards Sleep Center at www.eehealth.org. Dr. Flores, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to see hey. you again. Hey, it's great seeing you too. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you do medical school? Where did you do your uh, residency? Where did you do your fellowship? And a few opening remarks about the, the impact of obstructive sleep apnea that you see in your clinical practice. Sure. So I uh, went to medical school, residency, and fellowship at Loyola uh, University Medical Center right here in the Chicagoland area. And uh, after that, I joined DuPage Medical 12 years ago, uh, and I've been there ever since. Uh, I practice primarily out of Edward Hospital, which uh, is where you and I get to share some time together. And yes. when we think about sleep medicine, there's a whole slew of different medical problems that we deal with, but by far the most common and the thing that, uh, the thing that we deal with the most is obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, obstructive sleep apnea has a huge impact uh, throughout the world, both as far as uh, symptoms that people experience leading to poor quality of life, uh, as well as an impact in their social life. There, uh, there's a huge economic impact to obstructive sleep apnea um, because of lost productivity, because of accidents that happen. So, and then there's an impact on the person's uh, own health as a result of sleep apnea having a ripple, a negative ripple effect on their cardiovascular health and other organ systems. Um, so it's a, it's a huge, uh, we, you know, we're, we're so accustomed now to using the word pandemic. I'll, I'll tell you, obstructive sleep apnea is a, is a worldwide pandemic uh, well, that, that, that we have to deal oh, with. Well, you're, 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 you're speaking the truth on that, Dr. Flores, and that the impact is there. And, and one of the things that I think about uh, is that there are people that are out there that don't know that they have this. And then, and so well, this is truly an underdiagnosed and undertreated condition, correct? Absolutely. 82% of Americans who have sleep apnea uh, don't even know they have it. And the average time between the onset of symptoms and diagnosis is anywhere between five to seven years. So that means a person's been suffering from sleep apnea on average five to seven years before they're even diagnosed with it. So very, very underdiagnosed condition. Well, I want to come back to that in a few moments because you're really talking about the totality of it all, the, the, the lost productivity, the impact on things, relationships, uh, health, and everything. And we're going to get back to that in a second. So uh, you guys have met Dr. Flores, and, and I, just, I just love Dr. Flores. He sees a ton of my patients. Uh, I try to send him as many uh, referrals as possible. We have a very mutual Thing. Actually, Dr. Flores and I, we didn't share this at the beginning, but we actually met at Loyola. So we got a little bit of a hashtag Loyola reunion going on tonight, which is a good thing. So I've known you for a long time and consider you a great friend and colleague. So it's great to have you on. Thank you. Yeah, it's always good to see you. Even, All right. Even, uh, even in social distancing. Time. Hey, there we go. I got my swag on, of course, because again, I'm, I am a social distancing expert. There's no doubt about that. So <laughs> So everybody, you guys have met Dr. Flores. We're talking about sleep apnea. You know, when people come into our office, we call that the chief complaint. And the chief complaint is when somebody comes in and has a specific issue going on. So as you think about the chief complaint today, aka the question of the hour, it's this. What are the latest updates? 
updates about the causes, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. So I'm going to start there with Dr. Flores. Dr. Flores, can you just give us a little bit of just a, just a background, again, kind of a layman's term 101, uh, really, what does sleep apnea mean? Because I feel like a lot of us have heard of it, but we don't necessarily understand it. So the most common type of sleep apnea is obstructive sleep apnea. There's other types, but we should really concentrate on that one because that really is what you're going to see day in and day out. And that basically occurs when the tissues in the back of the throat, which include the tongue, the roof of your mouth, which we would call the soft palate, your tonsils. When you fall asleep and the muscles of the throat relax, there's going to be a natural narrowing of the airway. But in some people, either because of how your airway is shaped, like for example, if you've got big tonsils back there, or if you gain weight and the tissues in the back of the throat become more full, what will end up happening is that when you fall asleep and those tissues relax, rather than just having a little narrowing, they relax to the point where the airway collapses. And so of course, right at that moment, airway becomes obstructed. You can't get air in the lungs. Oxygen level in the blood drops and your brain senses all that as an abnormal event. And you end up going from a deep sleep to a lighter sleep. And so that fragments your sleep quite a bit. And as a result, it leads to daytime symptoms of sleep deprivation. And it leads to a whole variety of different uh, problems within your body as you go into this fight or flight mode during the night. Dr. Flores, does, does obstructive, and first of all, thank you for breaking down the, really the, the pathophysiology that happens. Again, this airway obstruction that happens uh, uh, in this process. Could you break it down a little bit more? Maybe let's do, let's do a couple quick overview statistics. I mean, we know that sleep apnea does not discriminate, of course, because it, it's fair game for anybody. But, for but sure. are we seeing some statistics as far as like, you know, do we see it in, you know, from a socioeconomic thing, any disparities there? Do we see more affecting African-Americans, Latinos versus Caucasians? What about Asians? Do, do we see any kind of the, the gender or socioeconomic or, or those other kind of uh, impacts? So, yeah, yes to all your questions, of course. Uh, typically before the age of 65, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is more prevalent in men, and typically it's of more significant severity. Um, even if you have similar uh, weights or body mass index. After the age of 65, that becomes less common. Uh, whereas as you get older women, uh, the prevalence of sleep apnea in women becomes more common. In regards to race, it is more common amongst African-Americans and Latinos. And surprisingly, it's also more common amongst Asians compared to Caucasians. And uh, the reason for that just has to do with airway anatomy characteristics that are, are more prevalent amongst Asians, even when they're thin. And so uh, you have to really be aware of all of those different statistics when you're seeing a patient because uh, sometimes it may not be obvious that they may have it, but yet, lo and behold, they've got pretty significant, you know, pretty significant obstructive sleep apnea. You know, one of the things that I think about in my practice is, is I always, as a primary care physician, I always think about, again, as I have kind of like my spider sense of everything that's going on, if somebody's there in my office, I'm trying to really try to peel back those layers. And obviously one of the biggest reasons that prompts me to think of trying to uh, diagnose somebody with sleep apnea is something called excessive daytime sleepiness or uh, somnolence. And, and, and now, of course, a lot of people are coming in, Dr. Flores, you probably agree, they'd say, I'm just tired. And we already know that. And that's such a very nonspecific symptom. But I think for me, what I try to do, if I hear those words and I'm trying to tease it out, if I don't have a clear cut answer right there, 
I actually wound up sending people for further evaluation to rule out obstructive sleep apnea. Let me ask you this question. Do you feel like we should be doing this more often? I mean, if anybody's got any kind of unexplained excessive sleepiness during the daytime, is that sleep apnea until proven otherwise? Or should we think that way as we're approaching our patients? Well, I mean, with, with that one symptom alone, you should definitely think about sleep apnea. But the other thing that could be going on is simply sleep deprivation. Uh, particularly in America, we are chronically sleep deprived. But all that said, sleep apnea is extremely common too. And so as soon as you hear somebody that says they're tired of being tired, uh, the red flag goes off and, and you should start thinking about it. At least it should uh, put you in a path of questions where you can begin to tease out some of the other symptoms. Do you snore? Have you ever been told that you stop breathing at night? Do you wake up with morning headaches? Do you have dry mouth? Um, do you have increased frequency of urination during the night? All those things, when you tie it into the fatigue, will really paint a good picture. And so oftentimes you already have a pretty good idea of what's going on for sure. Well, the interesting thing, as you said earlier, it's, it's, it's takes such a long time to make this diagnosis. And I want to come back to that point that you made earlier and now, and, and the fact that there's that missed opportunity when you think about somebody losing out on productivity or losing out on, on, on proper sleep and restorative sleep and, 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 you know, think about accidents that maybe could have been prevented or even the, the sequelae, the consequence of un, untreated obstructive sleep apnea, which we'll get to in a bit. But, but, but you think about those lost opportunities and, and really what, what I want people out there to know that are listening right now and hear Dr. Flores' words as well as mine is that, is that we don't, there's no such thing as crying wolf when it comes to your health. I want people to, if they have something going on, something's going on for just a few days or something like that, doesn't, doesn't mean that you, that, 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 that you, that you, you want every medical condition in the world. I want people to know that, that if there's something consistent, let's go ahead and investigate that. And especially now as we're in this heightened sense of personal health awareness with the pandemic sure. going on, this is a time to be very introspective about what you're trying to do with your health and your well-being. So I always want people to plant the seed of people. If something's going on, and it doesn't seem right, go ahead and talk about it. The best thing that I can do or the best thing that Dr. Flores can do is reassure you that, that you don't have obstructive sleep apnea or it might be something else. But we don't know unless somebody comes into our office. So let me ask you this question, Dr. Flores. You, know, you mentioned about some of the risk factors out there. Is there, a, or is there, is there like a common risk factor? Like, like, I mean, if you had to rank, what are the things that people are looking at? Because people are, are listening now. What are the things that are the biggest risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea? Well, I mean, the, the things that we look for are, of course, uh, your weight. So if you're overweight, if your body mass index is high, that for sure uh, is going to be an indicator that you are at least at risk. Um, additionally, there are things on our physical exam that are helpful. The neck circumference of greater than 17 inches. When you look in the back of somebody's throat, if the airway is very narrow, what we would call a class four airway where you can't see the back of the throat because the tongue and the soft palate meet together. All those things are very uh, strong predictors of whether somebody has sleep apnea just on physical exam and, and evaluation. Wonderful. So thanks, Dr. Flores. You, you know, mentioned also, you mentioned that men seem to have, uh, are certainly much more common, as you said, up to maybe about the age of 65, maybe a little bit, a little bit more than that. But, um, you know, I think this is a rallying sign for a lot of guys because a lot of times you can think like a, 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 people may work long hours or do a lot of different things and they could be sitting on an obstructive sleep apnea. Of course, people, when they come into CSN or medical practices, you know, they may already have had some consequences of that chronic, um, uh, this chronic undiagnosed things. What are the 
kind of things that you're seeing in your practice that are related to untreated obstructive sleep apnea? So, I mean, you bring up a great point. The, the fact that we see patients already in their 50s, maybe 60s, and it's clear that they've had the condition for a long time. But the reason why they're finally coming to see us is because they developed a bout of, let's say, atrial fibrillation. You know, they, that's an abnormal rhythm of the heart that makes their heart flutter. It can sometimes make people feel lightheaded. So they land in the ER because of the abnormal rhythm of the heart. And, you know, they get into the whole system uh, looking at it from a cardiology perspective. Well, 50% of people who have atrial fibrillation have sleep apnea. And if you don't treat the sleep apnea, you will not be able to manage the AFib very well. And so that's a classic example of somebody who has a condition that could have been very easily prevented and is coming to see us once another complication has, has already developed. Wow. And I think about the other things that we do. And really, as, as we're talking about this, it, it does come back. There's a big role of what we can do from a pre proactive standpoint in prevention and lifestyle. And, and that a lot of these things that are associated with sleep, at, with obstructive sleep apnea untreated uh, certainly are lifestyle related too. And they can be associated with other chronic conditions that you and I see, of course, all the time. You know, we see diabetes, we see hypertension, we see atrial fibrillation, we see congestive heart failure, we see a lot of different things. Uh, and, and almost always we're, we're seeing uh, somebody with obstructive sleep apnea that has those other comorbid conditions. For sure. Or if we're seeing people that don't have sleep apnea, we're seeing those conditions, then we say, you know what, you need to, let's screen you for obstructive sleep apnea. So I, I see it kind of working both ways, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think every single one of those conditions that you mentioned uh, can be linked to some degree with sleep apnea. Huh. So it's not to say that sleep apnea causes all of these things exclusively but it's a, it's a contributing factor to all of them. You know, untreated sleep apnea can worsen the severity of your diabetes because when you're under stress, you release more cortisol, which raises your blood sugar. So obstructive sleep apnea can trigger congestive heart failure because when you're not able to breathe adequately and your oxygen levels in the night are, are low, your heart is under stress and can eventually fail. Um, it can contribute to the development of hypertension and strokes. And so it may not be the sole cause of any of these problems, but it's a strong contributor to all of them. And so when you look at uh, treating one condition where you can impact your entire health, um, improving your quality of sleep is going to give you the most bang for the buck, I think, uh, than almost anything else other than maybe smoking cessation and weight loss. Right. I love it. And even when we talked about when we were last on my show back in the fall, we did the sleep show. I mean, we talked about in detail how how sleep is affected, uh, can affect almost every single organ system in the body. So yeah, I Absolutely. love how you just said like sleep is awesome. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and, I didn't do and, it myself. And the lack of it is terrible. For yeah, sure. it really is. It really is. We've, we've been there, brother. There's no doubt about that. Right. Let's get into some of the things, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times when people know about sleep apnea, they know they've got to get what's called a sleep study. Uh, and a sleep study is one of the objective tests that we do to diagnose people with obstructive sleep apnea or to rule, or at least to rule it out if somebody's having symptoms. Dr. Flores, can you, you know, it's interesting because I feel like every time, you know, I mean, I have some amazing patients when I say, you know what, I think you have this diagnosis. Here's how we're going to work it up. And then sometimes I get, I get, get a little bit of resistance and say, oh, no, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't, I, I don't want to go to that sleep facility, I don't, I don't trust it, or whatever kind of barrier there may be. Um, why don't you tell me about a little bit of barriers? We'll, we'll do a two-part question. What are some barriers that you're seeing into getting sleep testing? Actually, I'll ask the questions backwards. I did it backwards. What 
what is the sleep test? And then what are some barriers to kind of getting it done? So the, traditionally, the, the sleep studies that we would do would be a sleep study where you would spend a night in the sleep lab. And during the course of that night, we monitor your oxygen level, your heart rate, your brainwave activity, so we know what stages of sleep you're in. We monitor uh, airflow in and out of your body, your body position. It's a very comprehensive study. And people sometimes are overwhelmed at the idea that they have to wear gadgets in order to be able to sleep, but they think that they're not going to be able to achieve sleep. Um, and so, so that's a traditional polysomnogram. That's a, that's a sleep study that we would do in the lab. Now, the reality of it is that um, it's very rare that people don't sleep in the sleep lab. They may not uh, maybe sleep 100% of the night, but we usually get ample data to be able to, to make a diagnosis. Sleep, sleep labs are, are comfortable. It's basically, in essence, staying like in a small hotel room with your own private bathroom and everything. And so in that regard, um, it's, uh, it's something that's pretty easy to do. Now, that said, technology has allowed us to do other testing uh, abilities like home sleep studies, which I think are more in vogue than, any, uh, than ever now because, like I said, our technology is really good. It doesn't always take the place of the in-lab study, but for people who have a reservation about going to the lab or can't do it because they can't leave family behind or maybe their insurance doesn't cover it, a home sleep study is a good um, alternative to at least be able to get a general gestalt of what's going on and to make a diagnosis. Now, we, we may not be able to give as much detail as to you know when the apneas are occurring relative to what stage of sleep you're in and things, but if what we want to do is just make a diagnosis so that we can get to the treatment part, I think that uh, a home sleep study can be really helpful. Now, the second part of your question, which was uh, in regards to like, what are the limitations? Of course, people are afraid of going into the lab, but I yeah. think even a bigger limitation or, or maybe roadblock is a better way to say, is uh, people are fearful of the types of treatments that we may recommend. You know, people will tell me, well, I know I've had sleep apnea for 10 years. I got in a car accident, but I still did not want to go in for the study because I'm afraid you're going to treat me with CPAP. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they think all the time. you hear it all the time. Right. And they think it's going to be an enormous mask with a huge machine that makes a lot of noise. And I mean, the technology has gotten so good that nowadays we, we, we use little tiny nasal pillows that barely wedge in the nose. The machines are tiny. They make zero noise. And so some of these patients come in and they're like, man, if I knew it was that easy, I would have come in 10 years ago. Um, and so those are probably the two biggest uh, limitations. The third one would be, and this is maybe less common, somebody who maybe drives for a living or uh, is a train operator. Or, or, and these are the people that should be coming in, but they're yeah. fearful of being tested because they're afraid that if we discover they have sleep apnea, now their job could be in jeopardy. Uh, but we usually can navigate through that pretty easily. Wonderful. Thanks, Dr. Flores, for breaking that down. So I want to do this, Dr. Flores. I got a couple questions here coming in from people tuning in live. So I want to pick your brain. These are spontaneous questions. Love it. Awesome. We'll get into some myths versus facts in a bit, but I want to answer a couple of these questions. We'll get back to a couple of things that I want to discuss with Dr. Flores before we get into some myths versus facts. So here we go. Dr. Flores, is there a correlation between sleep apnea and the presence or absence of tonsils? Yes, uh, tonsils, uh, the, the anatomy of the throat includes 
uh, along the sides of the back of the throat. So along the sides of the posterior pharynx, that's where our tonsillar tissue is. And then if you go further upward, you've got your adenoids. And then of course you have the, the roof of your mouth, which is a soft palate. And so when the muscles in the back of the throat relax, the tonsils will be a contributing factor to the airway collapse. And in fact, when you look at children, uh, children who have obstructive sleep apnea, typically the, the treatment of choice in little kids is actually a tonsillectomy. So there's a very strong correlation. In adults, even though the tonsils can be contributors to the development of sleep apnea, uh, we've found that doing a tonsillectomy by itself is usually not very effective in most adults in being able to control the apneas. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Flores. Uh, here's a question coming in. Uh, I like this one. If you lose weight, can sleep apnea uh, abate? Can it get better? Absolutely. 85% of people who have sleep apnea have sleep apnea because uh, they carry extra weight. And so as they begin to lose the weight, the sleep apnea will get better. And people think, well, I need to get down to my ideal body weight. And that is absolutely not true we will see uh, significant, a clinically significant improvement in the severity of sleep apnea with as little as a 10 to 15% total body weight loss. So if you got a guy with a, uh, who weighs 300 pounds, if they lose 30 pounds, they may be far from their final goal of maybe 200 pounds, but at 270, you're already seeing an improvement. Wonderful. And I always say, and I'll further uh, comment on that one, you know, weight loss, as Dr. Flores said, the number one risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea is, is obesity. And so having a great weight loss strategy uh, with your physician, either with your primary care physician or your sleep medicine physician, is going to be cornerstone. It's going to be foundational to everything that you're going to be doing. Uh, and now, Dr. Flores, I want to ask you a question related to that. Now, is it, is it more so that, that anybody across the board, whether it's mild sleep apnea, obstructive, uh, moderate obstructive sleep apnea, severe, can all of them benefit from it? Or do you only find really weight loss helping maybe the more mild to moderate and not necessarily, not necessarily the severe obstructive sleep apnea patients? I think weight loss helps everybody um, it, for a variety of reasons. It may be that you go from having really severe sleep apnea to be, maybe a more moderate case. And in that scenario, it opens up the avenue of treatment with alternative devices other than CPAP. So in the setting of severe sleep apnea, you really do need CPAP because that's going to be the main therapy that's going to be effective. But as you begin to lose weight and all of a sudden now your sleep apnea may be mild to moderate, even if you still have symptoms from it, of course, CPAP continues to be effective. But there are other treatment options, like, for example, oral appliances as fabricated by a dentist or uh, there are other treatments that become uh, very effective in that scenario. And, and uh, it's actually pretty fun taking care of patients as you walk them through their weight loss, you know, journey, uh, taking them off the CPAP because they don't need it anymore. You know, that, that's a great uh, sense of accomplishment for the primary care doc and, and for me too. Yeah, and I actually think I like to see, and when the weight loss happens, I like to see some other metabolic benefits that happen. Obviously, people feel amazing, but I, like, I love even seeing the metrics come down, the A1Cs coming For down, sure. the blood pressure coming down, the lipids improving. So you get this holistic total uh, uh, just achievement going across the board. Let me ask you a question because you mentioned oral, you mentioned oral appliances. And so from my understanding, there's kind of two ways that it really works. There's one either to kind of reposition the jaw, uh, typically 
uh, the mandible may move a little bit. And in other ways, kind of suction, almost having a suction effect on your tongue. But right. from what I understand is that, is, is, that, is that it may not reduce the amount of apnea episodes or the, or the apnea hypopnea index. We call it the AHI guys out there listening. But do, do you see a reduction in that as compared to as, as similar to PAP therapy itself? Or, or no. is there not? So it, it, it's, so it depends on the severity of sleep apnea, right? So in the setting of severe sleep apnea, oral appliances, and let me just kind of uh, uh, distinguish between the oral appliances that you can buy online or, or through like a telemarketer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Please and, do. Yeah, please you know, make a because, distinction. <laughs> um, if, you, if you read the fine line on some of the things that you can buy online that you, that you mold like the old football guards, you put it in boiling water and you throw it in your mouth. So the disclaimer for them is that it can help you for snoring, but literature has never actually been able to show that they're a consistently effective treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. The ones that are fabricated by dentists, uh, which I prescribe all the time too, really do, they're able to measure the amount of mandibular advancement so that you kind of fall asleep with your jaw thrust forward. In people with mild to moderate sleep apnea, particularly those where their sleep apnea has a strong positional component, meaning that it's worse when they're on their back versus on their side. So people with mild to moderate sleep apnea with a positional component can have up to an 85% success rate with an oral appliance, which pretty, I think is really good. good. That's, that's, really, that's really severe, good. For sure, right? Yeah, in the setting of more Please, severe sleep apnea, yeah, in severe sleep apnea, the efficacy rate uh, is only about 30% with oral appliances. And so I really try to pick and choose the right patient for it because just like anything else, oral appliances have their negative side. So they're expensive and some people can get jaw discomfort. And so you have to pick the right patient for it. But I have a lot of them that, that have been really successful. Wonderful. Let's do a couple more questions and we'll go back to a couple other, the other kind of treatments that are out there, kind of the latest things. Dr. Flores, here's a question coming in here. Is there a need for someone already on CPAP therapy to see a sleep doctor periodically? Of course, I'd say, yes, go see Dr. Flores. Uh, I know you'll probably say the same thing too. Uh, but how often, you know, I know we're generalizing a little bit, but say somebody's controlled on their obstructive sleep apnea. I mean, I mean controlled on their, on their PAP therapy or whatever kind of therapy we prescribe them. Right. How often should they connect in with, with you, for example? So we usually recommend a quick um, 10, 15 minute follow-up once a year. And I'm going to have a little bit of a pause from Dr. Flores there. I don't know if he can still hear me, but I'm going to. Sorry, Dr. Flores, you're, you're still there, correct? Just a little so bit of a break. We can make sure that uh, they're being controlled. And the third reason why it's important to follow up is that, um, what's that? Oh, I got you now. There was a little bit of a hitch from my end, but I hear you though. You were going to say the third reason? Yeah, and so the third reason is also because uh, CPAP machines uh, or any PAP machine requires equipment to be replaced periodically, the hose, the mask, and uh, you usually need a doctor's order for that. Otherwise, insurance won't pay for it. And so the three reasons would be, number one, to make sure that you're feeling good and that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Number two, to make sure that the download from the machine correlates with what your symptoms are, because sometimes we can tweak things on the machine to maximize your therapy. And the third reason would be in essence, so that you can continue to get your supplies. 
Excellent. So let's talk about a little bit of some, some of the more therapies that are out there. And I love how you just kind of really broke it down and said, you know, listen, the, the treatments of yesteryear, you know, those are in the past. You know, there's so many new, so much new innovation going on right now. As you, as you even mentioned, like the, the miniaturizing of the, uh, sure. the approaches. Uh, so I think that's fantastic. You know, this day and age, um, uh, obviously we're in the COVID-19 pandemic and, um, uh, I want to ask you a question about AutoPAP. So, uh, Auto uh, for those out there, and I'm going to, I'm going to, Dr. Dr. Force can, can quiz me on this to so make sure it's good. But AutoPAP is another kind of technology that's out there used, and really what it has, it's it's really like kind of a using utilizing a computer programming that will automatically set uh, the, the the pressures needed for you to be able to uh, to maintain your airway open, especially in this, in, in this idea of COVID-19 right now, where maybe people may not be going for a traditional CPAP uh, titration study in the sleep lab because of potential uh, aerosolizing, you know, the virus. So, so now I'm starting to see, I'm starting to read this online one. So I guess if it's online, it's true, but I, but I always <laughs> say have a, have a, have a vetted professional kind of clarify things. Uh, are we seeing some of that, and maybe that's always been in the background, but, but are we seeing that now? Is that the approach now during this, during this pandemic? If somebody gets diagnosed, are you going to send them up for an automatic, automated kind of an approach for their PAP? Yeah, so an auto PAP is a machine that has a, uh, an algorithm built into it so that rather than programming it to one pressure setting as determined in the sleep lab, where you're able to ensure that they don't snore, that their apneas are controlled, their oxygen levels normal, and they can maintain deep sleep, with an AutoPAP machine, rather than having it set up that one setting, you put a pressure range. And so the machine is able to ramp itself up or down based on the resistance, the resistance it, it encounters. So as it's blowing in, it's sensing resistance. If it senses too much, it gives you a little more pressure. If it senses uh, very little resistance, then it lowers itself down to its lower threshold. And so AutoPAP machines we use all the time, even before the whole uh, COVID uh, pandemic thing happened. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is a, a, a safe way to treat the majority of people. There's still a role for titrations to be done in the lab. And uh, for some people, it's really important. Some people may not benefit from standard CPAP. They need other methods of PAP therapy, like BiPAP therapy. Um, other people may have uh, other medical problems, like let's say, for example, COPD or congestive heart failure, where an auto-PAP machine may not be as effective as, um, you know, as you'd like it to be. And so, I mean, the majority of my days right now uh, are spent trying to figure out the safest ways to bring people into the sleep lab, even for these treatments. And we've gone through great lengths putting protocols together that, in fact, we're going to be releasing within the next week or so, so that we can get patients that need an in-lab titration to come in safely and be able to do it without putting themselves or the staff in jeopardy. But, uh, but you're right, going back to your question, AutoPAP is something that I use all the time. It's effective in, in a good portion of people. And uh, in this day and age, it's thing that I would go to uh, even more uh, rapidly than I would have before. Wonderful, thanks. Let's talk about a couple other quick technologies and we'll get into some myths versus facts. Um, so I was reading some interesting things. You know, hey, I love ingenuity and everything. But tell me about this this technique called the hypoglossus nerve stimulation. With this, with this, uh, what is what is that? Do, are we using that? Can you break it down for us a little bit? Yeah. So I mean, it's actually pretty 
fascinating. That's uh, the, the brand name for it is an Inspire device. I don't know whether there are other devices that do the same thing, but um, in essence, it's a, a surgically device. It looks a lot like a pacemaker, so it lives under your skin. And there is a special wire or lead that attaches to your hypoglossal nerve, which is a nerve that controls the muscles in the back of the throat. And there's a second lead that attaches to your diaphragm, which is your main respiratory muscle. And so every time you take a breath, the diaphragm lead tells the lead in your neck to send a signal, activating the muscles in your throat. And so in doing that, even though you're asleep, the muscles of the throat never relax. And so it does work. Um, in fact, in people who fall within the right uh, subset of sleep apnea patients, it works really, really well. But some of the limitations are they will not take patients with severe sleep apnea. They will not take patients with a body mass index. I believe the last time I checked was over 32. Um, and uh, before they determine whether you're a good patient, they have to do sleep endoscopy, which is where they put you to sleep with a medicine called propofol. And they have a camera that films what your throat does because they have to make sure that the anatomy of your throat would be amenable to this device. And so, it, there is a role for it for sure, but you know there, there are limitations to it. It's expensive. You have to have you have to have a permanent device inside of you. You know you have yeah. to go for surgery for it. So uh, I'll I'll be honest. I've sent a few pa patients for it. I, I don't have a patient that's actually had it done yet because they come yeah. back and they're like, you know, maybe I'll try CPAP again before. Uh, but I think that, uh, we're in the first generation. We're going to be moving, I'm sure, towards other ones that are less invasive. Yeah, I, I was going to say, who's got that kind of, that sounds very labor intensive and certainly a really big commitment from a patient to go down that route. But again, we want people to know right. that there's options out there. And they, some people might say, you know what, I'm all about new stuff. But I like how, and it sounds like they might be cherry picking those kind of cases a little bit. But, a little bit. That's uh, what I was going to use it. <laughs> But uh, but at least but at least there's some options out there. Let's go over a couple other quick therapies, and we'll get into some misversus facts. So, Dr. Flores, uh, tell me about this thing. You know, I was reading this reading this kind of new therapy as I was preparing for my discussion with you today, and um, about these these valves that go in your nose, and these valves that allow you to inhale through the nose, and then when you exhale, you only exhale out of like one little tiny little yeah. little hole. Uh, it's called expiratory positive airway pressure. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, the brand name for them is Provent, and uh, it's an interesting concept. Um, when you, it, it, the, there are these little stickers, basically, that are molded to fit outside of your nares, outside of the openings of your nose, and they seal there, and they're perforated. And so it's, it, it works almost like a one-way valve. It's easy for you to pull air in through them, but when you go to exhale through your nose, it creates a back pressure, and that yeah. back pressure is meant to splint the tissues in the throat so that the airway doesn't collapse as easily. They are FDA approved, but really, um, they have only been shown to be effective in patients who have very mild sleep apnea and in patients who have mild sleep apnea where they have a low weight. So maybe it's driven by anatomy more so than weight. Um, some of the, the, the negatives to it is that... Uh, for one, of course, if you open up your mouth, you negate the effect because yeah, now the back pressure. So that's one limitation. Another limitation is that they're expensive because these things are disposable. You take them off in the morning, you throw them out. And so a lot of times it's uh, like a $50, $60 a month commitment indefinitely. And so 
Um, honestly, I, I haven't had a lot of success with them, even though I, I realize that, that, that some people have. But they're out there. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Flores, for breaking down some of the treatment strategies that are out there. So what I want to do is every week on this show, we always do something called myths versus facts. And that's really helping to set the record straight, really making sure that the information that you get is the right information from the right resource. Again, we're all about building trust and delivering truth. So I got some great myths versus facts. You know, Dr. Flores, I might actually participate in this one. I think when we did the sleep study, the sleep show back in the fall, I gave you all the questions more or less. I might've did one at the time, but uh, you know, I'm going to give you the hard ones and I'll give myself the easy ones, something like that. So we'll see right. what happens. That's all good. So here we go. Myths <laughs> versus facts. Fair, but all right. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's crazy how that works that way, but I guess we got to do what we got to do. Here we go. I'm gonna <laughs> first question or first statement. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say a statement, everybody out there, and then Dr. Flores, if and if I participate, we'll say myth or fact. We'll kind of go boom, 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 kind of kind of rapid fire these kind of things, but we'll uh, hopefully have some good answers and help clear the air on some of the misconceptions about obstructive sleep apnea. Here we go, Dr. Flores. First statement, myth or fact: obstructive sleep apnea is caused. Primarily by obesity. Fact. Please explain. 85% of people who have sleep apnea have sleep apnea as a result of uh, carrying extra weight. If they lose the weight, generally it improves. 15% uh-uh. have it as a result of airway anatomy. Wonderful. Thank you. Here we go. Next statement here. Uh, I, here it is. Uh, surge, this one's for you. Surgery is the surest way to fix my obstructive sleep apnea. Myth or fact? Myth. Please 50% explain. Fifty percent of people who have uh, uh, ear, nose, and throat surgical intervention for sleep apnea will continue to have sleep apnea once they recover from the surgery. And then, amongst those that actually see improvement, so the fifty percent that actually benefited from the surgery, half of them will have a recurrence of sleep apnea within five years, either because they gain more weight or the tissues in the back of the throat begin to remodel themselves. So when you look at five-year outcomes there's only about a 25% success rate, which is not great. Wow, here we go. I like this one. Here we go. I'll take this one. I like this one. Um, Wearing a CPAP mask makes me look unattractive. I will say that is a myth. And I'll tell you why. There was actually a small study that was done where they had people, they took photos of people pre and post uh, CPAP treatment. It was a small study. I think it was about 21 people. And it was done, I believe, in 2013. And what they did was they took photos of the people before they, got in their, before they started their CPAP treatment. And then they took it after. And what they did was they showed the photos to actually physicians. And so what they saw in people that were properly treated with obstructive sleep apnea, they, had, they didn't have bags in their eyes. They looked rested. They actually had more youthful look. Their cheekbones were risen a little bit. And, and they just looked better compared to their, their pre-treatment. Sure. Uh, pictures. So that is a myth. So sleep app, CPAP machine is, is the real deal. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add a little bit. To Please that. go ahead. Particularly for uh, some of our younger patients, they are really concerned about uh, what their bed partner is going to think of them as they wear the, the PAP device. And, uh, you know, I typically remind people, uh, you know, if, if you're going to have a romantic night, clearly you're not wearing the CPAP. But uh, <laughs> when you're sleeping, snoring is not very, uh, very attractive either. And so uh, clearly you can easily navigate around CPAP therapy and, and, and the fear of, of how it's gonna impact your love life probably. I, I like to say CPAP machines, keeping couples together for years and years and years. There you there go. You go. <laughs> <laughs> here we go, next statement, myth or fact. All right, here we go, Dr. Flores. Children rarely experience obstructive sleep apnea. Is that a myth or a fact? That is a myth. <laughs> 
Please fact, explain. One, in fact, one of, uh, one of the very common misdiagnoses that are out there are uh, uh, pediatric patients, so kids who are diagnosed with ADHD. Um, I'm not saying ADHD is not, a, is not a real diagnosis by any means. I'm just saying that the symptoms uh, of obstructive sleep apnea in kids oftentimes are different than in adults. In kids, when they're sleep-deprived, they may misbehave, they're inattentive, they may act out. Um, and so symptoms are very similar to ADHD, when in fact a kid may not have ADHD, they have obstructive sleep apnea. And then the other thing is that in kids, they can have sleep apnea even if they're not obese. Uh, if they have enormous tonsils in the back, if they have tonsillar hypertrophy, um, they could be a thin child, but yet have bad sleep apnea. And so uh, tonsillectomy is the treatment for kids most of the time, and obstructive sleep apnea is common in children. We see it. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Flores. All right. I like this one. We'll do a couple more of these. So this one's for Dr. Flores. It's kind of a two-parter, but here we go. Everyone who snores has sleep apnea and everyone who has sleep apnea snores. Is that kind of a myth or a fact? Myth. Please myth. explain. Uh, so it's been estimated that greater than 50% of all adults snore. Um, and so you can have what we call benign or heroic snoring benign to the person who's snoring maybe not to the bed partner but you can right. rattle windows and you're not obstructing you know um whereas uh you can also have some people who have such bad sleep apnea that they don't create the sound of snoring because all they do is obstruct gasp obstruct again and they don't have the opportunity to rattle the tissues to generate the snore so you can have bad sleep apnea without snoring and you can have bad snoring without sleep apnea myth wonderful We'll do a couple more of these. Here we go. I'll take one. Obstructive sleep apnea is no big deal. And I would say that's a myth. It actually is quite a big deal. As we talked earlier, there's a lot of medical conditions that are associated with, obstruct with uh, obstructive sleep apnea and certainly compounded when the, when the obstructive sleep apnea is not treated. And those are anything from diabetes, obesity, uh, mood disturbances, heart disease, heart failure, stroke, uh, you just name, name it. Uh, there's, an, there's, a, there's a very good link. And this is why it comes back to the point of that we need to make sure that people get this disease diagnosed early, as Dr. Forrest said earlier, five to seven years average time to make this diagnosis. That's a long time. And, but if we make that diagnosis earlier, we can intervene earlier and people can live better and healthier lives much more rapidly. Here we go. I'll take this last one. This one's for you, Dr. Forrest. I won't take it. I'm going to give it to you. So here we go. Uh, getting tested for obstructive sleep apnea is both scary and a hassle. Myth or fact? Well, that's a myth. I mean, we, we kind of went over it. I think the sleep labs are comfortable and, and it's a one night thing where you can get the diagnosis. But even if you're very resistant to it or just simply can't go, uh, home sleep studies are extremely easy to do. Um, and so really the, the, the biggest roadblock is just the idea of, of you going through it. Once people go through it, they'll come in and say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Wonderful. So there you go. Miss versus facts. Thanks, Dr. Flores. So we have about five minutes left, everybody. And I really thank everybody for coming in and tuning in with us this evening, just really hear uh, the passion of Dr. Flores, but also really talking about the severity of this diagnosis and really the fact that we need this diagnosis is, is underdiagnosed and undertreated. So we really want to create that urgency. So I said at the beginning, we call it the chief complaint when somebody comes into your office. At the end, when somebody leaves your office, we call it the assessment and plan. And that's really when we give somebody a diagnosis, we give them a treatment plan, and most importantly, we make them 
follow up. So Dr. Flores, give me a couple take on points uh, for people out there listening to us about the severity or the seriousness that we should take in creating more awareness about obstructive sleep apnea. <clears throat> Sarah, can you, can you repeat that? You cut out. Yeah, give, me, give, me, give me a couple of take-home points about really what we're talking about today. What should people take home today from today's conversation of obstructive sleep apnea? Sure. What are some highlights? So point number one, uh, sleep apnea is more than just snoring. Uh, point number two, the treatment for sleep apnea doesn't have to be cumbersome. You don't really have to live with it. We've got tons of options nowadays. And so... I mean, it's a huge take-home point to remember. It's, it's not about snoring. It's not just about waking up your spouse. I mean, this has big repercussions to your general health. And we've got a lot of options for treatment. So it shouldn't be left untreated simply because of fear of, of what could be recommended. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Flores. And my kind of final take-home points are this. Uh, with obstructive sleep apnea, the opportunities there, for, for a lot of stuff in our health, what we're dealing with, there are opportunities there. There are missed opportunities as well, too. But I always started thinking the positive. Again, I want people to to really be introspective, certainly during this time where we're sheltering in place, to really think about your health. Remember to have a routine. But remember, if something's going on and it's bothering you, we are still open for business. Business. I want people to know if they're feeling tired, if they're feeling excessively tired, or they're having any other kind of symptoms that could under that could signify obstructive sleep apnea. It's important to know that your doctor's office is still open. They can still be seen. It might be virtually, but you can still be seen and evaluated. We don't want this condition, which has so many sequelae, so many consequences, to lead you in a to be feel, feeling stuck and that kind of certainty. We want people to know that there's options out there and we want to make sure that you take your health and life seriously. I know you do, but I want you to take advantage of everything that you do to feel better as you get through your day to day. So I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Juan Flores. Hey brother, it's always good catching up with you and everything. Dr. Good Juan Flores. Hey, love it, my friend. Dr. Juan Flores, double board certified in pulmonology, critical and sleep medicine, DuPage Medical Group. Check him out at www dupagemedicalgroup.com. He's also medical director of the Edward Sleep Center. Check him out, www.eehealth.org. You've been watching and listening live on Facebook. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez, producer Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2020 by NDG Wellness, LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my next episode next week. Addiction in the age of COVID-19. Hey, everybody, stay well. Enjoy your family, your loved ones. And I'll catch you guys next week. Peace out.